This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Please be seated. It's been mentioned earlier, this is the last of four weeks where we're looking at the Psalms and we're seeking to understand how you move from protest to praise. And so I wasn't here last week, but Ben preached on Psalm 77 and I listened to it yesterday in a long family car ride. And we learned how to think of pain and how to take it in the form of lament or protest before God. It was very appropriate. It was helpful uh, for one driving a, a long road trip across the great sunshine state of Florida. Um, we've seen these last weeks, and Ben mentioned a couple weeks ago, that there are two really common responses to pain. And you can probably observe this in those around you, and if you're honest, and if you're candid for a minute, in yourself as well. We can attempt to deny pain, the pain around us and the pain within. We can seek to plaster it over, to paint above it, to remain at the superficial or surface level and pretend that it's not there. Or we can fall into utter despair, being so aware, so taken, so drawn to the pain and so overwhelmed by the prospect of getting beyond it or of seeing it addressed that we find ourselves in darkness, in dry earth, in utter despair. We might say in one sense, we can be tempted toward naive and hollow optimism on the one hand, or absolutely dark pessimism on the other hand. But what we see in the Psalms is that there's a third way. There's a third way beyond flippant optimism and futile pessimism. And that's the way of hope. And just as we can either deny or despair the pain that we experience, we can also receive it as God's discipline for his children. As the way by which God, as a good father, grows us and shapes us and molds us and matures us, that what is out of bent would be straightened And that what is as yet undeveloped or immature would be grown and strengthened. That both sin and our fallenness as well as our youthfulness and our immaturity would both be addressed. That we would be brought not only to goodness but to glory. And so as we look at Psalm 150 and we look at this final word of the Psalter to us. This final call. I I want to invite you to hear it as a word not of how we might deny and paper over our pain, nor is something that simply can't be embraced, can't be owned, can't be said because we, in our pain, must despair and see no way beyond or no way out, but rather see it as a part of God's fatherly kindness that our Father in heaven, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God revealed 
in the face of Jesus Christ, that this one is disciplining us and growing us and not leaving us as we are, but drawing us and conforming us to the image of Christ. And it's fitting that our call to worship was Psalm 148. As we look at the Psalter, we see there are 150 Psalms, and it can be very easy at times to think that they're just scattered, as if this is David or somebody else's journal entries and nothing more. But actually, one of the the notable things about the Psalms is that there's a lot of organization and design, not only within Psalms to how they're constructed, like Psalm 119, where every stanza begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, just a brilliant artistic device to help uh, Jews who would know that language to remember it and to be able to bring it to mind. But we also see on a grand scale, the Psalms have an order. They have a beauty. Psalm 145 calls us to praise the Lord. Just read a couple verses from the beginning of that Psalm. It begins saying, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I'll bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 145 is all about reasons that God is worthy of being blessed and praised and worshipped. And what's fascinating is that the last five Psalms, Psalms 146 through 150, all begin and end with that call, praise the Lord. Psalm 148 recounts how the sun, moon, and stars, all the things of this world are to praise the Lord. That's why they're here. Psalm 150 draws our attention to how every man, woman, and child ought to praise the Lord. How the human creatures, who are the crown of God's creation, are meant to praise the Lord. And it's worth reflecting here on what this psalm reveals about praise and about how praise is a part of God's design and of God's fatherly discipline for us. And there's just three simple questions that I want to explore as we look at this psalm and see how it brings to a joyful end and a fitting conclusion our journey from protest to praise. And I'm mindful that we're, we're hitting for the cycle. We're not just praying and singing to God and hearing from his word, but we've had a lot of baptisms and we've got the supper yet to celebrate. So we'll, we'll be quick. We'll skip prepositional phrases and adjectives and the occasional adverb and move through this. But the first question we ought to explore is why on earth would we praise God? And there's a couple things that the psalm reveals about why God is worthy of praise, why our hearts are drawn up in praise to this God. And the first thing that we can see here is that verse 2 tells us you praise him for his mighty deeds, you praise him according to his excellent greatness. We praise God not only because God does great stuff for us, but God is actually great. Do you catch that? Mighty deeds are things that God does on our behalf. They're ways in which God blesses us. God provides for us. God answers our cries and God solves our problems. But the psalmist isn't content to stay there. He's not content to, to treat God like a, a service provider. He goes on to say that you praise God according to his excellent greatness. He just is praiseworthy. He just is beautiful and glorious. 
And as the one who is good and merciful, he is worthy of praise, of adoration, of being cherished and treasured. And so the first reason the psalmist wants us to know that we're called, we're intended, we're designed to praise God is not merely that God, like Santa or a grandparent, gives us good stuff, but that God actually is himself good. That's his character. The second reason, if we back up just a bit, is found in verse 1. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. It's probably speaking here about the heavenly sanctuary. We can get that because it not only refers to his sanctuary, but it immediately goes on to say his mighty heavens. Notice, This is not speaking like Psalm 148 is of the angels praising God. The entire psalm here is focused on men, women, and children, on you and on me praising God. There are other psalms that speak of rocks crying out or of angels on high rejoicing at God's kindness, but this is all focused on calling us to praise God. And notice, it addresses us as doing so in his heavenly sanctuary, in his mighty heavens. The second reason that we praise God is that God doesn't merely do good stuff for you. God gives you himself. God isn't merely a wealthy philanthropist who hands out or donates over there, but he adopts you into his home. He draws you into his presence. He not only shows kindness to meet your needs, but he actually shows kindness in wanting to meet and be with you. And so we see these two beautiful reasons for why we would be drawn and motivated to want to praise God. That he not only does good things, but he is himself good. And he not only does good things, but he actually does us the goodness of being with us and drawing us into his heavenly family. That we can dwell in his sanctuary and in his mighty heavens. Do you see God's beauty revealed in creation? Do you see God's kindness and glory revealed in your redemption, even as we saw it pictured in baptism this morning? And does that make you want all the more to be with God? I mean, if, if God is the kind of being who cooks up what we see in the story of Jesus, redeeming people like you and me from the fall by sending his own son to live, to die, to rise, and to ascend on high for us. Can you imagine what he would be like in eternity? Can you imagine what goodness and glory, what grace and mercy marks his very character? And doesn't that make you want to praise him, to acclaim him? In Psalm 145 that begins this concluding set of psalms on praising the Lord, We read in verse 19 this, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. It doesn't mean simply that if you fear God, he's going to give you cool stuff where you can negotiate terms with God, where you can promise to fear him and your desires for other things will be satisfied. No, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Fearing God is being centered on God. Fearing God is being alert and attentive to God. Fearing God is prioritizing God above all else. And the one who does that, the one who views God as their greatest need, God as their greatest joy, God as their greatest desire, 
we'll find that he always fulfills that desire. Isn't that great? We were talking leaving a family vacation just yesterday, and you can have a wonderful week away. You can have a great meal. You can have a wonderful conversation. And there's always, however good the experience is, there's always that yearning that it could last a little longer, that it could be a little more. That to the degree that it's good and satisfying, there's the itch for something still further. Except here, where desire can truly be fulfilled. Precisely because it's a desire that's centered on, that's prioritized on, the only one who is limitless good and glory and beauty and joy. The only one who can truly satisfy. So why praise God? Because he is good and glorious. And because he adopts us in and gives us his very self. Who praises God? I think as we read on, we can see that this not only reveals something about who God is, who receives our praise, but also who we are, who ought to come and, and to praise God. And again, there's, there's a couple things we ought to observe. It's interesting that this, like the Psalms just before it, is a Psalm that doesn't have what we call a superscription. It, it doesn't have a particular author or a setting. It's not meant to be located in some very specific spot, like this is David's response to being confronted by the prophet after he sinned. Uh, this is you know, David's cry when struggling with this challenge from a political opponent. This is as generic as it gets. This is good for all times and all places. Um, this is a word that is appropriate in every setting. And not only that, but the way that it's written is meant to emphasize that this is good for all comers. So it's fascinating. You look at the text of Psalm 150, and it is repetitive, is it not? Again and again, praise him, praise the Lord, praise God, praise him. If you look and you follow the verbs, which are all imperatives, except for one, you will see that there are 12 calls to praise the Lord. 12 calls to praise the Lord. Surely bringing to mind the idea that God has 12 tribes, that his people are made up of the fullness of the 12 tribes of Israel and all of us who by his grace have been adopted into his people through the work of Jesus. That this psalm is appropriate. This psalm is not just appropriate, but necessary for every one of the people of God. That praise is the occupation. Praise is the calling of every man, woman, and child. It's not the vocation of the priest alone. It's not the occupation of the person who's slightly more spiritual than you alone. But this is a calling that is intended globally. All the tribes of God's people are meant to praise God. And if we were going to miss that, if we we're going to miss the redundancy and the, the symbolic power of 12 recurring calls to praise God, then we can catch what makes it sort of a baker's dozen. There's a 13th reference in verse 6, the one instance where it's not a straightforward imperative. There's a statement rather that says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's a clarifying summary of what the redundant 12 references to praise God are meant to instill in you, that we're to know that everything that has breath is to praise the Lord. 
that we, that whoever we view as maybe irreligious, whoever we view as on the outs, on the margins, whoever we're not comfortable with, whoever seems strange to us, whatever it may be, whatever divisions, personality, ethnicity, etc., whatever it may be by which we're closer or, or more distant to people, God's design is that all of us across all of those divides would praise him, would be drawn into his adoration, into acclaiming his name, that this is a global call for all God's people. And there's two things we see about how this reveals something about who we are. The first thing I I think we can see about who praises God and what we learn about being the sort of person who's called to praise God is this, that we see our position in perspective here. We see our position in perspective here. Notice in verse 1, God is mighty. Notice in verse 2 that God's deeds are mighty. He is strong. He is vigorous. Those are synonyms for what's being said there. He has power. What's said of us by contrast? Well, verse 6 says, we're merely those who have breath. That's all that's stated. God is powerful and you can breathe. And that's meant to put you in your place. And being put in your place is actually why praising God is logical. Why it fits. Because God is the one who is good. God is the one who is true. God is the one who is beautiful. We are those who are dependent and weak and frail. We are creatures and he's the creator. And so praise and adoration and acclaiming his name, adoring his glory, these are fitting. Therefore, we should praise God because we, as we sang earlier, live on borrowed breath. It's his breath in our lungs. And so we pour out our praise. Are you so clear about your dependence, your frailty, your finite need, that you sense your calling to praise God on high, to laud his name, to acclaim his glory and not your own? There's a second thing we see though. And this one at first glance might seem to contradict what I just said, that we're put in our position, that we realize who we are before God. But the psalmist goes on. We see that we are merely those who have breath, according to verse 6. But we see also in verses 3, 4, and 5 that we have many things to offer God. We have many things to offer God. Praise him with trumpet sound, with lute and harp, with tambourine and dance, with strings and pipe with loud clashing cymbals, with sounding cymbals. We are weak and frail. We depend on borrowed breath, but we have brilliant beauty to offer before God. Still further, we can say that our creative glory, our beauty, it comes from the same God who breathed life into us. We are truly, really weak, if we're honest. And yet God doesn't just give us strength so that we can grit it out and survive a bit longer, but he delights in our beauty. It's not for nothing that we read on, and in the Song of Songs, we encounter a text where God speaks 
delight and adoration for the beauty of his bride. That he finds her to be glorious. That he finds her to make him happy. That he finds her to be worthy of praise and acclamation. It's not for nothing that Jesus told his disciples that those words that we will hear upon reception into glory will be words of adoration and acclamation from our Father. Well done, good and faithful servant. God is not merely so kind as to somehow put up with us, but God's very heart is so inclined to us that he delights in us, that he delights in what he's made and reclaimed. We read of this in Luke 15, that cycle of three stories Jesus illustrates this principle of a man who's got a lot of sheep and he loses one and he leaves all the rest to go and to find that lost sheep and he delights all the more at finding that one sheep that was lost than in all the many that he had. Or he goes on and he speaks of the woman who's lost a coin and who goes on and pursues that coin at all costs, it seems. Or finally, the most famous one, the story of the father whose prodigal son has ruined the family name and wrecked the family fortune and comes back cowering and the father rejoices and delights and runs to his son and kills the fattened calf and throws a huge party to celebrate the one who's been reclaimed and received back. That father doesn't merely put up with the son coming back, giving him a basement room that he can play video games and and move back into the house in. He's not a a begrudging middle-aged parent allowing the, the late 20s kid to come back into the house, but complaining about it. No, the, the father runs. The father rejoices. The father chases after the son and the father throws a party. The father is delighted with the son. And we haven't appreciated the goodness of the gospel if we don't realize that it not merely promises an answer to sin and to our fallenness, But the greater word that God will glory in us, that God is delighted. God is delighted with what he has made and remade. And so there's an appropriate sense of self-forgetfulness that we are merely those who have breath to offer God. But there's also an appropriate sense of self-awareness that we are not merely broken and dependent, but we are beautiful by the making of God. And that the way of maturity, the the, the path of discipline is growing into that sense that by God's design and by God's care, we actually can be those through the work of Jesus who delight our heavenly father, who isn't embarrassed by us, but in the gospel who delights in us. So we've seen a couple reasons why we would praise God. A couple things this illustrates and illumines about who we are as those who ought to praise God. But before we conclude, we ought to think for just a couple minutes about how this relates to the text we've looked at the last three weeks. Because we've been drawing our attention to Psalms that look at pain without flinching and that seek to discipline our response that we would not deny it in foolish optimism, nor that we would despair of it in absurd pessimism, but that we would face it straight on with hope. 
that we would be disciplined to journey through this world and through this pilgrimage, having left Egypt but not yet having arrived in Canaan. How does this psalm relate to those? How does this praise of God relate to those protests of hurt? I'm reminded of something that was said in the third century. We've spent a couple months just before this series looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. It was a real pick-me-up. And Ecclesiastes, you'll remember, is about the vanity and the despair and frankly the pain of building your lives on all sorts of different things. The pursuit of wisdom, of a good reputation, uh, the pursuit of riches, the pursuit of, of vigor and strength, all the many things that, that we throw ourselves into, they are all vanity. They're like uh, that breath that is there, visible in the moment, but then dissipates. That fog that seems to be so palpable, so substantive, but is so fleeting. It's gone. And it's crucial to note that Christians for centuries have seen that there's a process to the path of maturity. Uh, Origin of Alexandria, third century Christian pastor, he pointed out that in the wisdom literature that God has given us, there are three books that are actually a sequence. They, they provide a journey. The book of Proverbs describes how the wise man or woman learns to live in this world and to navigate it prudently, thoughtfully, not to be foolish, not to be stupid, not to be ignorant, but to be wise and discerning, cunning, to be able uh, to do life well. We might say this is the art of adulting in many respects, that someone would grow up to be responsible and even righteous, just. Origen points out, then you come to the book of Ecclesiastes, and just as you're getting a hang on this life, just as you're getting a handle on what it means to navigate the ins and outs of work or family, of romance and friendships, of all the many areas of your life, just as you feel like you're getting a handle on it and you're getting ahead and you're making progress, Ecclesiastes is there to remind you that it will not satisfy. That it will be an itch that, that can't be scratched enough. That if navigating work is what it's all about, you'll find you're never able to navigate it well enough. If having the, the marriage or the spouse or the children or the family that you've always wanted or that others seem to, to want for you, if, if somehow that's what it's all about, then you're going to find that it's never going to satisfy and that's going to be a terrible weight around your and their neck. If having the right reputation of, of being known as the churchgoer and the volunteer and the person who always does this and fully participates in that, if that's what it's all about you'll find there's always more people will want from you. Or at least there's always more that you will worry that they want from you. Ecclesiastes is there like a gut punch to wean us off our silly fascination with these earthly pursuits. But Origen points out that after you've learned to navigate life well in Proverbs and after you've had the gut punch of Ecclesiastes, that you realize that these things won't satisfy ultimately and that they can't, like God, provide for you, he says, finally you come to a third text. 
the Song of Songs. You come to a text where you find that satisfaction and joy and delight, where beauty that really answers your heart's yearning, it can only be found in God. Not, not merely in what God might do for you, in, in the deeds he might perform for you, in blessings and benefits that he might give unto you, but in him. That Song of Songs is that culmination of the journey. As many would put it in years past, it's the Holy of Holies of Scripture. The reminder that the greatest of places, the greatest of delights is being with God. I want to suggest there's a similar movement in the Psalms. That the Psalms, in teaching us to lament, are disciplining us. And as we learn to experience suffering, not with foolish pessimism, not with lame optimism, but as we're disciplined into the practice of hope, which is something altogether different, we learn that the answer is not merely the alleviation of our problems, but rather it's the awareness that we're made for and we're given the very presence of God. And this morning, I want to remind you that this is only true if you're in Christ. We can turn to another passage, Romans 5, where Paul says this at the beginning of the chapter. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. Suffering here for the Christian is given. Suffering here for the man, woman, and child in Christ is productive. Notice it doesn't say that suffering is pleasant. It doesn't say that suffering isn't tragic. But it says that there's more going on than we first sense. There's more going on than we'd like to admit. That suffering is here by God's design that endurance and character and hope might be produced in us. That the fatherly discipline that we need might occur, that we might be brought up to maturity, that we might be weaned off our silly pursuits in this world, that we might be redirected to find our hope and our happiness in God alone. Think of David, apparently cunning, physically strong, not only a a successful shepherd in his youth, but one who is courageous enough to be a warrior in battle when it didn't seem that the odds were that high. One who rose from a, a family of somewhat small sort of Uh, lifestyle on the margins to the throne of Israel, one who is viewed as, as being moral and righteous, man after God's own heart. Everything was working for him. And it was over many years and much suffering, both that from without and that from within, 
from the harms of this world and from the sins of others and from his own foolishness and unrighteousness, that David was able to pray and lament his way away from being so taken and enamored with the things of this world, that he could grow to say, one thing I desire ultimately, that I might be in the house of the Lord, that I might see and savor his glory. And so as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, as we're reminded that God provides for our every need, we do well to be warned that optimism and pessimism, that denial and despair are really the only options for those outside of Christ. But for those who are justified, for those who have peace, for those who can stand before God because of what Jesus has done in living on their behalf, in dying their deserved death, in rising for their blessedness forevermore, we have a third way. We alone are capable of praise because we have received his gift, his grace. Not because we're better, not because we're less sinful, not because we're less plagued by suffering or pain, but because we have hope. And because that hope does not put us to shame. And so as we come to this table, I pray you come in faith and you come in hope, knowing that the God who provides food and drink this day longs to provide greater things still and longs to be the greatest of things for you. Let's pray. God, We think of David, we think of the Psalms, we think of the many pains and troubles that he brought before you in anguish and protest. We know the ways that you delivered, we know the ways that you answered his cry, we know the ways that you were there for him and you kept your covenant promises. And we we consider our own lives, we know even this week, occasions where we have felt compelled to call out to you and you have pulled through. And so we give you thanks and praise. And we thank you not only for answering our cries, but for redirecting us to greater longings. We confess we are far too easily pleased, and we thank you that by your word you discipline and mold and transform and gift and grow us, that in Christ Jesus we might know the peace of longing for you, and that in Christ Jesus we might know the happiness of being found by you. And so we pray now that you might turn our hearts upward to you. We pray now that you might draw us into your very presence and that right now, as we are in the sanctuary in the mighty heavens, we might praise your name. For it's in your son's name we pray, amen.